This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today we are glad to have Professor David Sloss with us. He's here to talk to us about a new book he's published called Tyrants on Twitter, Protecting Democracies from Information Warfare. David, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Um, it's customary to ask our guests uh, to tell us a little bit about their background and how they became interested in their area of expertise. Uh, so could you please tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, so I've really had uh, two very different careers in my life. My first career, I worked for the United States government, and I spent nine years working for a small federal agency called the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. While I was doing that, I did a lot of work on U.S. It was This was in the Cold War, so U.S.-Soviet uh, arms control negotiations as well as nuclear proliferation issues. And that background certainly informs my approach to the topic of the book. But then when I left government, I went to law school and then pursued a career as a law professor. So I've now been a law professor for 23 years. My expertise is in both Uh, international law and U.S. constitutional law. Uh, And uh, I really got started on this project back in 2017 or 2018 when revelations came out about um, Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016. And at the time, I really knew almost nothing about social media, but I... Um, you know, knew something about the First Amendment, and I knew something about sort of U.S.-Russian relations, and I just thought this would be a interesting topic. So when I got started, I really was focused on uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election, but then the topic sort of changed as I uh, dove further into it. Thank you. And I can see, uh, well, Given your background, I can see how uh, how that background influences writing the book. But we'll talk about that um, uh, as we go further. But about this book, Tyrants on Twitter, what a fascinating topic. So how did this book come about? And I'm guessing, uh, did COVID-19 had, had, like, influenced your idea of writing a book? Uh, I wouldn't say COVID influenced it. Like I said, it really was a reaction to revelations about um, Russian interference in the 2016 election. And I believe it was summer of uh, 2017 that I got started. What happened was 
there was a young man who, uh, son of some good friends of mine, who had come to me a while earlier about uh, advice about applying to law schools. And then he approached me that summer and he said, hey, I'm quitting my job. I'm taking some time off before I uh, go to law school. He was planning to start law school in the fall. And he said, do you have any research projects you're working on that I can help you with? And I said, well, I'm actually interested in writing about this topic, but I need somebody to educate me about social media because I know nothing about social media. Uh, so he uh, actually helped educate, you know, spent a couple of months sort of educating me about social media and sort of diving into the topic. And that's really how I, uh, how I got started on this. Great. And uh, just to set the scene for our listeners, can you briefly tell us what the main argument of the book is and why in particular you chose these two countries uh, Russia and China, and then we'll delve deeper into some of the other aspects of the book. Okay, so I really start with the problem of what I call democratic decay. And uh, there is a lot of now empirical information out there, different different groups, different organizations that sort of track the uh, quality of democracy in the world. Uh, for example, Freedom House comes out with a report every year called Freedom in the World that looks at, that rates every country in the world on a scale from zero to 100 in terms of, you know, how free or unfree they are. And there, uh, there are other ones, too, that are frankly a little more sophisticated, but Freedom House is, is probably the best known. But no matter which of those sources you look at, what's clear is that from the period from like 1990, which was the end of the Cold War, until about 2006 or 2008, we had very favorable trends where the number and percentage of democracies in the world were increasing. The number and percentage of authoritarian states in the world was decreasing. Uh, but those trends started to reverse sometime around 2008, 2009. Uh, and what we've been seeing now since about 2009 is a decline in the percentage of countries in the world that count as democracies and an increase in the percentage of the states in the world that count as autocracies. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people worried about this trend. I am one of uh, several worried about this trend. I think it's a, a very disturbing trend. And the book really looks into to what extent is social media contributing to this trend and, and more specifically, to what extent is information warfare contributing to this trend. And we can talk a little bit more about how I define information warfare, but the basic idea is it's the use of social media to conduct what I call foreign influence operations. Uh, there's clearly been a tremendous growth in the use of information warfare over the past decade or so. Uh, and I argue that this is one significant factor that's contributing to this process of democratic decay, the decline of democracies and the corresponding rise of autocracies. Uh, and, you know, the first part of the book is documenting the problem. The second part of the book is looking at uh, potential solutions. Yeah, and that's why you call the first uh, chapter diagnosis. And that's where you've included this graph, which I, which I didn't know about. And I found it quite alarming myself when you see that in the past 10 years, democracy has been declining, um, even in some liberal countries. Um, right. Yeah. 
So let's start with some definitions because uh, people have a different, I mean, might have different definitions of information warfare. How do you define information warfare and the countries that you have pointed out to research? What, what sort of platforms do they use to, to reach their audience? Okay. So um, I define information warfare relatively narrowly. There, you know, there's no one right definition, right? You can play around with different definitions. Uh, and I use a, a Venn diagram in the book to sort of provide a picture of what I mean. But I will sort of describe that Venn diagram for the listeners here. So information warfare lies at the intersection of two other phenomena. One of those phenomena is foreign influence operations. Foreign influence operations have been around for centuries. This is just the idea that states, uh, you know, engage in various uh, activities to sort of interfere with or more neutrally try to influence uh, domestic developments in other states, right? So when one state is trying to influence domestic developments in another state, that's a foreign influence operation. There's nothing new about that. That's been around for a long time. The other half of the Venn diagram is um, uh, organized social media manipulation. That's not my term. It's a term I borrow from scholars at the Oxford Internet Institute. But organized social media manipulation is something pretty new. It comes along with the rise of social media. And it has both a domestic component and an international component. So the domestic component is, you know, political parties now in democracies, right? Just talk about democracies. Political parties in democracies use social media as part of uh, political campaign strategy. That's become quite commonplace in democracies. That falls under the rubric of organized social media manipulation. Uh, it's not necessarily anything nefarious. It could be perfectly, you know, harmless, right? Uh, but But it is uh, organized in the sense that you've got a government actor or a political party who is using social media to achieve some kind of political objective. Where organized uh, social media manipulation uh, intersects with foreign influence operations is what I'm calling information warfare, and that is the use of organized social media manipulation to try to influence political developments in other states or to influence electoral outcomes in other states. Uh, And organized here means it's being run by a government or being run by a political party. It's not just some, you know, random acts of individuals, right? Uh, So that's, uh, that's the idea. And there are, uh, again, according to Um, uh, reports put out by the Oxford Internet Institute, which is based at Oxford University in uh, the UK, there are only about seven or eight countries in the world that are actively engaged in information warfare under this definition, that is using social media as a political tool to influence Uh, domestic developments in other countries. And China and Russia are not the only ones, but they are at the forefront of this. And they are the two most powerful states that are engaged in this type of uh, information warfare. And that's really why I focus on China and Russia. And uh, I want to say social media, I'm guessing they're using platforms such as Twitter or Facebook. Right. 
Yeah. So, so uh, China has its own social media platforms that operate domestically, right? WeChat is probably the most well-known of those, but there are others as well. Uh, Russia has its own social media platforms that operate domestically. Uh, VK is the one that's uh, most well-known. Uh, but when they're engaged in using social media to uh, conduct foreign influence operations, they're primarily using U.S. platforms. They're using Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, these well, I didn't focus that much on TikTok in the book because the manuscript for the book was done, uh, I can't remember, a year and a half, two years ago. And obviously, TikTok has, become more, TikTok has become more important over the last couple of years. So I talk about it a little bit, but I didn't really look in detail at TikTok, although I suspect there's a lot going on on TikTok these days, too. Um, so, you know, they're interested, Russia and China are both interested in reaching audiences in Western liberal democracies. And to do that, uh, we can come back and say a little bit more about the use of WeChat for that purpose, because they actually do use WeChat as well. But primarily, we're looking at them using, uh, you know, U.S. social media platforms uh, for this purpose, because that's the best way to get to those Western audiences. Okay, yeah, you raise a number of good points, but I want to take them one by one. So let's talk about Russia first. Uh, they are, they are, I guess they are more straightforward. They don't really try to be that much subtle in their campaigns. They have TV channels as well. So can you talk about some of the tactics they use and what is the type of information warfare? Who is the target, for example? Because they do also run these sorts of operations in Europe as well and also in the United States. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, there's a there's a quote I like a lot that I use in the book that uh, comes from a former uh, White House official in the United States, but he says, uh, you know, Russia is a hurricane and China is climate change, and I think that's a sort of a nice little snapshot summary of the differences between the two. So Russia's info information warfare tactics and strategies are primarily negative and destructive. Russia is out to undermine NATO. Russia is out to undermine the European Union. Uh, and Russia is out to undermine liberal democracy more generally. Uh, so their targets have mostly been Europe and the United States, not exclusively, but that's sort of uh, where uh, Russia is primarily engaged in interference. And I document in the book that there's documented activity of Russia conducting information warfare in something like 20 different countries that are members of either NATO or the European, U European Union or both. And that's just since 2014. So less than, you know, less than 10 years, 20 different countries. Um, mostly what Russia is doing is, in Europe at least, but this applies to the U.S. too, is supporting far-right parties, because far-right parties in Europe tend to be sort of skeptical of NATO, skeptical of the European Union, and much more sympathetic to Russian foreign policy goals. So Russia is out to sort of uh, bolster far-right parties in Europe, uh, weaken support for uh, more centrist or, uh, you know, 
sort of center left, whether center left or center right, you know, the, those parties tend to be uh, more supportive of NATO and the EU, more hostile towards Russia. So they're, uh, they're basically influencing elections and influencing political conversations along those lines. And similarly, in the United States, uh, you know, there was a very clear finding after the 2016 election that Russia was intervening to sort of support Donald Trump's candidacy and try to undermine Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Uh, and they're using a variety of sort of tactics to do that, but that's sort of what they've been, what they were up to. And I'll come back to that 2016 election. Uh, what you said about uh, right-wing groups in, in, in Europe now taking sort of a liking to what Russia is doing, and I guess the same thing is going on, especially with the war in Ukraine. Uh, have you... Have you more recently in a research uh, this to see that if this trend, for example, is increasing, Russia's use of misinformation, uh, information warfare in Ukraine? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of Russian disinformation about the war in Ukraine. Uh, this has been, you know, fairly well documented by a number of groups that uh, that track this stuff. One of the things that's interesting uh, that maybe has not gotten so much attention is China is basically also spreading the same kinds of narratives that Russia is spreading. So China is using its very large sort of propaganda apparatus to essentially spread Russian narratives about the war in Ukraine, including Russian disinformation about the war in Ukraine. And how about 2016 election? So there has been a lot of research, but how much do we know about it? How, 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 how much factual evidence we have? Um, and was Russia's interference uh, really material or influential in changing the results? Uh, well, so we have a lot of information. Uh, the single best source of information is the Mueller report, but Robert Mueller was appointed afterwards as special counsel, did a very detailed investigation, came out with a report that's about 450 pages that goes into great detail about Russian intervention in the 2016 election. Uh, Robin Mueller himself does not reach any definitive conclusions about whether Russia uh, actually succeeded in, you know, tipping the election in favor of Donald Trump. The most detailed study on that question is a book by a woman named Kathleen Hall Jamison called Cyber War. She's a media and communications scholar, and she uses her expertise in media and communications to show how Russian uh, interference really changed the conversation and changed the tenor of the conversation around the 2016 election at critical points in the sort of later stages of the electoral cycle. And she makes an argument that it's at least sort of plausible to believe that Russia actually did tip the election in the three key swing states, which were Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and that Russian interference in those states may have been enough to sort of swing the vote in favor of Trump in those three states. And those were really the three states where that election was decided. So, you know, she says, look, we can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? We don't have that kind of information, but there's certainly plenty of evidence out there to suggest that 
uh, Russian intervention was influential and maybe even so influential that it uh, tipped the election in favor of Donald Trump. Um, let, let's talk about Russia. You consider Russia to be a greater danger than, uh, sorry, China. China to be a great danger than Russia in terms of its information warfare. And uh, you, er, prior to this interview, you sent to me an article uh, which you were about to to be published. I, I don't know if it's still, if it's published yet or not. It was called "Ban Chinese State Media from Social Platforms." Before I'll talking about, the, I'll send you the link. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Um, so before talking about Chinese uh, information warfare, can you tell us why you consider China to be even more dangerous than Russia in this information warfare? Well, I think China is more dangerous in the long term because it's just uh, it, it's a more powerful country at this point and it's on an upward trajectory in terms of gaining more power. Uh, Russia is really on a downward tra- trajectory. Russia is a declining power. Uh, and frankly, the war in Ukraine, I think, is going to accelerate uh, that decline. Uh, the war in Ukraine has not been good for Russia. Uh, and uh, so, so I see uh, Russia as declining. That's not saying China is a bigger immediate threat, right? But I'm thinking more in terms of long-term threat, China is bigger. And one of the reasons specifically as regards information warfare is that China has invested um, billions of dollars over the last decade or a little more than a decade in building up a global media empire. So uh, you're, you may be aware, your listeners may be aware that during the Cold War, the United States operated Voice of America. And Voice of America was the United States effort during the Cold War to basically get its message out to the world, right? Well, China now operates about uh, six or seven different state-run media companies that collectively I think of as Voice of America on steroids. Uh, they really have a much bigger, more far-reaching global uh, media empire than any country in the world these days. They're operating uh, you know, very extensively in Asia, Africa, Latin America, I mean, also in Europe and North America, but I think where the real battle is, is not, I mean, if you think about this in terms of a contest between democracy and autocracy, I think democracy in Europe and North America is fairly entrenched. And I don't think China is trying to sort of, you know, turn the U.S. or Canada or, or, you know, Australia into authoritarian states. Right. They're happy to have the, you know, the existing liberal democracies remain as liberal democracies. Where a lot of the battle is, is um, Asia, Africa, Latin America. And China has a much bigger media presence in those parts of the world than the United States does these days, and is really influencing and shaping conversations there. And I think that's really significant in terms of this longer term struggle between democracy and autocracy. And uh, can you give us some details about China's tactics in information warfare? And one good point you mentioned was its influence in Africa, which is not really so much talked about because uh, they have a lot of infrastructure projects there and satellite information warfare is, is also an area they're using to, to bolster their own influence. 
and there is this software WeChat that you talk about in the book as well. So can you give us more details about the types of issues they would like to, uh, you know, manipulate public opinion on and also the tactics they use? Yeah, so uh, I would break it out into what's going on in sort of liberal democracies and what's going on in other parts of the world. So let me start with liberal democracies. Um, Many of the leading liberal democracies in the world have large ethnic Chinese communities. I'm thinking of the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, other countries as well. Uh, in um, the, uh, WeChat has about 240 million users outside of China, okay, outside of China, 240 million users outside of China. That's a lot of people. China controls the WeChat platform. And one of the more disturbing things that's been going on is because of these large ethnic Chinese communities within Western democracies, politicians in these countries are using WeChat to communicate with their ethnic Chinese constituents. And this is happening in Canada, in Australia, in the United States, and elsewhere. Right? There is now mounting evidence that China uses its control over the WeChat platform to, a censor, to essentially censor communications between politicians in liberal Western democracies and their constituents, insofar as they are using WeChat to communicate with their constituents. So this is a pretty direct and troubling intervention in the democratic process in countries that are liberal democracies, and they're able to do it because WeChat has a very large presence among ethnic Chinese, you know, basically all, you know, virtually all of the ethnic Chinese uh, in these countries are using WeChat in part because they use it to communicate with folks back home in China, their relatives back home in China, right? So this is one kind of example of what China is doing that I find uh, pretty disturbing. The other thing uh, I'll talk about in a little bit more general terms, and that is what has been called um, digital authoritarianism. Uh, there is now very good uh, political science, social science research that shows that when uh, authoritarian countries or even countries that are not necessarily solidly authoritarian, but more what political scientists call hybrid states, which is neither democratic nor authoritarian, when uh, digital technology is incorporated into their society, it tends to strengthen autoc autocratic control. And China is very much behind this because a lot of the digital technology that is being adopted in both authoritarian states and hybrid states is being supported by Chinese technology companies. And those Chinese technology companies, when they are doing digital technology, it's really optimized for surveillance and censorship. So if you are... Uh, a dictator or an authoritarian ruler in a you know semi or you know fully authoritarian country, this is really appealing to be able to get this digital technology, you know, uh, exported to you, sold to you by these Chinese technology companies, that is essentially optimized for surveillance and censorship, and then the government can use this to essentially strengthen autocratic control. And as I said, there's a lot of documentation now showing that the states that adopt digital technology, the authoritarian rulers in those states tend to last longer 
and essentially have more stable governments uh, with greater control, right? So this is a process we're seeing happening in countries uh, throughout the global south, and it is largely the infrastructure of digital uh, authoritarianism is essentially being provided by Chinese technology companies who are exporting this technology to countries all over the world. And uh, if, if we ban, for example, China from, from the social media, will they still be able to use their own software or their own platforms? Because as you mentioned, they have this software, for example, which has like 200 million people, over 200 million people users outside China. So they will still be able somehow to um, exercise their power. Yeah, so, so my main policy proposal has to, has to do with banning uh, Chinese and Russian state agents from social media platforms. That proposal is more about protecting democracy in existing democracies than it is about resisting this process of digital authoritarianism in the global south. Social media plays a role in that, but social media is not central to that, right? Uh, But social media is central to uh, both Russian and Chinese interference in existing democracies. And by banning Chinese and Russian state agents from social media platforms, it basically really significantly would inhibit their ability to interfere with and undermine democracy in existing democracies. Um, and there was this table on page 91 of the book, which I found quite alarming. Uh, it's the comparison between Facebook and Twitter followers with some Chinese state media companies. Uh, some of them I'd never heard of before. But, but they're there, and, and the number of, for example, likes or followers they have is quite a lot. And uh, you earlier you mentioned that China is also helping Russia in its information warfare in justifying the war in Ukraine. So I was wondering if you could a little bit maybe elaborate on that to give us some examples of how they do that. They are, they are political allies anyhow. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so so this is I agree with you that this is alarming. What the table on page ninety one shows, in effect, is that you've got uh, five different um, Chinese state media companies that all have more likes on Facebook than any of the big U.S. media companies. So the top five Chinese state media companies have somewhere, uh, you know, between 50 and 110 million likes on Facebook. The top U.S. media companies, CNN has 33 million, Fox News 18 million, and it goes down from there. So, you know, these Chinese state media companies, at least in terms of, you know, uh, if you measure reach in terms of how many people they're reaching or having a much bigger reach on Facebook than CNN or Fox News or New York Times, right? Not, not true on Twitter, by the way. The US, the U.S. media companies tend to have more followers on Twitter, but the Chinese media companies have a lot more followers on uh, Facebook. Uh, now, uh, what I don't have here is measures of engagement. And there are people looking in 
at that in more detail right now. But my understanding is that China China's getting a whole lot better at driving engagement, right? This is ultimately what they're interested in. It is not just, you know, you know, how many followers do you have, but are they actually engaging, you know, you is is are individual posts actually, you know, generating conversation and sort of reaching people. And I think the the research is still out on that. But at least, you know, by this one measure, China is reaching a lot of people. That matters, coming back to your question about Ukraine, because Russia is able to reach, well, first of all, the Europeans have now shut down the two main um, Russian state media companies, which are RT and Sputnik. Uh, And the Europeans have essentially shut them down in Europe because RT and Sputnik were spreading a bunch of disinformation about the war in Ukraine. Um, RT and Sputnik don't reach that many people outside of uh, Europe. RT actually had, did have a decent sized following in the US, but, uh, but they're not reaching a whole lot of people in the global south. But China is essentially taking those same messages, which are now essentially shut off in Europe because of the fact that the Europeans um, you know, banned RT and Sputnik. But those same messages are getting out to people in Asia, Africa, Latin America through these Chinese state media companies. And they're shaping the perceptions of the war in Ukraine there. And they're doing this both through social media, but also maybe even more so through traditional media, through television, radio, newspapers. Chinese state media companies operate lots of TV stations, radio stations, and newspapers throughout the global south, and they are generally propagating sort of Russian narratives about the war in Ukraine, which is blame NATO. NATO's really the aggressor here. You know, Russia is just sort of defending itself against aggression from NATO. And, you know, the Chinese companies are essentially spreading this kind of story about what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, in terms of the target audience, of course, both of them target Western audience. But is there also the, the same kind of information warfare going on inside their own countries? They, of course, they have absolute control of the media in Russia or China. Mm-hmm. But are the primary targets only Westerners or maybe Russian and, and Chinese uh, citizens re- re- living in Western, Western countries? Uh, oh, so they're citizens living in Western countries, yes. Um, I'm not sure how big a role uh, social media is playing there. I, was, I thought you were going to go for a di- slightly different direction with that, which is in China particularly, it's been well documented that China employs what has been called the 50 cent party. And these are, there are supposedly like millions of people paid by, I say supposedly, it's been fairly well documented, millions of people paid by the Chinese government to influence conversations on social media within China, right? So the the Chinese equivalent of Twitter is called Sina Weibo. Their equivalent sort of of Facebook is called WeChat, although WeChat really you got to think of as sort of Facebook and Amazon rolled into one. It's a big shopping platform as well as a social media platform. Um, 
Uh, and so there are all these people paid by the Chinese government to intervene in conversations on those platforms, try to shift the conversation in a different direction and sort of push narratives that are more favorable to the Chinese government. So if you look domestically what the Chinese government is doing, it's a combination of surveillance, censorship, and sort of information manipulation, right? They have very widespread surveillance so they can keep track of everything that's happening on the domestic social media platforms. They prefer not to shut people down, right? They actually try not to do censorship. What they prefer to do instead of censorship is just, you know, basically get people jumping into a conversation to turn the conversation a different way and to get it go their way. And only if that doesn't succeed will they sort of censor and shut people down. They're very sophisticated at doing this. Russia does some of this too. I would say Russia is not as sophisticated, but one of the things that is that is sort of changing quite rapidly in Russia just in the last few months, like basically since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russian government has been taking a much more active role in shutting down people in within Russia who are posting stuff on social media that they don't like. So. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have said there's still actually a fair amount of criticism of the government, dissent from the government that was going on in Russia and that was appearing on social media. They have really made a major effort to shut that down since they invaded Ukraine. And the social media space in Russia is now much more tightly controlled than it was a year ago. And uh, how about the the uh, far right groups that you mentioned? So I'd like to talk about capital right in the United uh, what, what happened in the United yeah, States yeah. last year. So my question sort of has two parts. One of them you kind of talked about. So feel free if you want to skip that, which was far right groups in in in, in Europe or even in your Ukraine. But I'd like to talk more about capital riot. Um, because these far right group and conspiracy theories in the United States did play a role in instigating um, uh, the capital riot. But how about do do we know if Russia or China played any role in in, in, in fomenting disorder in the United States last year? Um, there, I have not seen very much information to indicate that either China or Russia played a major role in instigating the riot at the Capitol on January 6th last year. That seems to have been a largely homegrown phenomenon. Although I have to say that um, it's hard to say that with a great deal of confidence because basically since, uh, well, for the last sort of, you know, six years or so, what we started seeing in 2016 was Russian narratives on social media and far right, and now I'm talking about the United States specifically, right? But Russian narratives on social media and far right narratives on social media sort of converging, right? And really coming together. Uh, that, you know, that really goes back to sort of 2016 and the run up to the 2016 election. And so, you know, some of what shows up on there is social media that looks like this is just sort of far right stuff on social media. There may be, you know, 
sort of fake accounts operated by the Russians that are a piece of that that just haven't been identified as such, right? Uh, so it's a little hard to separate out who's the domestic far right and who are the Russians, at least on social media. Uh, but uh, but there, there, I haven't seen any convincing evidence that either Russia or China played a you know a vital role in the events leading up to January six. Now, we, we've talked about the diagnosis, definitions, the way they operate and things. You also put forth a very detailed proposal uh, for a transnational regulatory system, and it has seven elements. Uh, so I was, wonder, uh, I was wondering if we could talk about that. What is this transnational regulatory system? And then we'll talk about a couple of those elements in more details later on. Okay. So the and this is where I really draw on my uh, background as a former U.S. government official and former uh, arms control negotiator in coming up with this. Uh, but the uh, the basic proposal is to create a new international organization that I call uh, uh, the Alliance for Democracy, and the Alliance for Democracy would be a coalition of about. 35 or 40 states that are liberal democracies. And the main goal of this Alliance for Democracy would be to uh, come up with a system for regulating social media on a transnational basis so that there would be an agreement among these 35 or 40 states that would then get implemented into domestic law in all of the countries through either legislation or regulations. But the legislation or regulations wouldn't be identical in every state, but would be broadly similar in every state and would be sort of guided by this international agreement. And the, the main purpose of the regulatory system would be to uh, significantly reduce the influence of uh, Chinese and Russian state agents on major social media platforms. And uh, as a formal matter, the states would agree to ban Chinese and Russian state agents from social media. Uh, as a practical matter, the ban would never be 100% perfect. You're always going to find ways around it. But the ban would make it much, much more, the, or say, say the ban supported by the other elements of the system would make it much more difficult and costly for uh, Chinese and Russian state agents to operate on social media and conversely make it um, much uh, cheaper and easier for the companies to identify who actually are uh, foreign state agents, because that is sort of a fundamental problem. That that was the the fundamental problem that made if if you accept that Russia actually had a lot of influence over the 2016 election, the main reason is because Russians were able to appear on social media as ordinary Americans. Other people interacting with them on social media really believed they were ordinary Americans, and. Because of that, their interventions were a lot more influential. Because if you know, if you or I are on Twitter and we, you know, see something on Twitter and there's a you know big flashing red flag says Russian state agent, right? We're going to react to that differently than if we think, oh, this is just a U.S. citizen commenting on you know domestic politics, right? So the system is designed to make it much, much more difficult for them to basically adopt these 
uh, false identities in which they persuade people that they're somebody other than who they really are. Um, let us talk about uh, uh, the, the, uh, part five. Like I said, it has seven elements, seven parts. Part five, which I just quote from your book, which says that we need a, a registration, registration system that will require social media users to register their accounts and de declare their nationalities, including a verification system enabling governments of alliance member states to verify that social media users who claim to be nationals, uh, nationals of member states are, in fact, nationals of those states. So it's to verify their identity. So my uh, question is that, uh, in the first place, a general question, this uh, regulatory system, how viable it is, because it, it seems that it requires a lot of administration and logistics behind it. And once it's put into place, uh, how can we guarantee or ensure that goodwill citizens are not really banned? Or what about, again, the, the issues about data privacy, no, identi the, 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 the identity so, so there are people who would like to keep their identity. You know, you know, it's all about governments increasing surveillance. Right, right, right. So what, uh, uh, what is your citizenship? I'm Iranian myself. I'm, okay. I'm living in Australia. You're, uh, you, you, you have what we would call you're a permanent resident of Australia? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so let's say you set up a social media account on Facebook and you identify yourself as a permanent resident of Australia, and you provide some identifying information to Facebook that they're going to share with the Australian government, so the Australian government can say, yes, in fact, there's a guy with this name, this date of birth, this, you know, in the U.S. it would be like an INS number, right? You know, I don't know what it would be in Australia, but there's some identifying number that you've got sort of, you know, issued by the Australian government that they use to identify who you are, right? So you give Facebook, here's my name, here's my date of birth, I'm Australian, here's my identifying number. They run it by the Australian government. The Australian government says, yes, this is a real person, or at least there is a real person whose identity matches the information provided here, right? Um, so that would essentially be the way it would work for anybody who is setting up what I would call a public account on social media who is claiming to be a citizen or national. And, and you get, and I deal with there with legal permanent residents, you can claim the nationality of the country where you are a legal permanent resident, uh, even if it's not, even if you're not a citizen, right? So the rules would allow you to do that. Um, uh, so if you're claiming the nationality of one of the 35 states that's a member of the Alliance for Democracy, you give the information to the company, the company gives it to the government, the government says, yes, this is a real person. And then basically the government is required to destroy that information, right? We don't let the government hang on to that information. Now, a lot of people have questions about, yeah, but how do we really know they're going to destroy it? How can I be confident that the government is not going to use this information to spy on me, uh, right, to monitor my social media account? I don't want the government monitoring my social media account. So I have a couple of different answers to that objection. I recognize that this is a real concern for a lot of people, right? One answer is, 
If you're really worried about it, you can choose to set up a private account rather than a public account. If you set up a private account, you're exempt from the registration requirement. And the only thing is there's a limit on how many people you can directly reach with your social media account, right? So uh, I don't know. I haven't checked lately. I probably have somewhere between 100 and 200 followers on Twitter. Uh, I don't have a big Twitter following. Uh, That would be below the threshold where I could set up Twitter as a private account. I could sort of put stuff on Twitter. My followers would see it on Twitter. Um, But, you know, I'd be limited with a private account that I can't send messages directly to more than 500 people. So a lot of people might say, fine, I don't need to be able to reach more than 500 people on Twitter or Facebook. I'm happy to have a private account. I do my private account. And that way I don't have to register. I don't have to worry about sort of government surveillance. Right. The other thing is, uh, but let's say you really want a public account. Um, The rules are set up so that you can have a public account that is totally anonymous. So the example I use in the book, because one of my uh, childhood idols, this dates myself, I'm old, but was a ba- famous back to basketball player, sort of the greatest basketball player of his age who uh, went by the name Dr. J, right? So I decide I'm going to set up an account on Twitter and my Twitter identity is going to be Dr. J. As part of the registration process, I have to say, I am David Sloss, here is certain identifying information, but I say I want to set up an account under the name of Dr. J. Twitter is precluded from giving any information to the government that would now would allow the government to link Dr. J to my true identity. So as long as Twitter follows the rules, right, Twitter shares with the government, David's loss, here's a birthday, <coughs> excuse me, here's a passport number. The government says, yeah, we recognize David Sloss with that birth date and that passport number. This is a real person. They communicate that to Twitter, but the government never knows that actually that identity is linked to Dr. J. And in fact, Twitter is required to keep that information relatively secret within Twitter so that there's a limited number of Twitter employees who actually have information that links David Sloss to Dr. J. Right. So basically, this allows me to set up a public account, appear publicly on Twitter, be anonymous on Twitter so that people on Twitter don't actually know my true identity. And, you know, I think that system works pretty well. It's basically what we've got now. Right. Because what we've got now is, I mean, as it turns out, I'm on Twitter as David Sloss. I'm a law professor. There's reasons why, as a law professor, I want my Twitter account linked to my identity. But plenty of people appear on Twitter anonymously, and we don't know who their real identity is, at least not without doing some digging, right? And this would set it up so that even by digging, it would be hard to find out information that would link that anonymous or that pseudonym to the real identity, right? The other, the one other thing I'll say about this is that... <clears throat> One of the things I learned in doing research for the book, which frankly is pretty scary. So about five years ago, Russia, uh, sorry, not Russia, Facebook, Facebook set up an information warfare team and Facebook hired a bunch of former government employees on its information warfare team. These are people who worked for the FBI, the CIA, other sort of national security agencies within the federal government. 
there is lots and lots and lots of back-channel, behind-the-scenes communication between Facebook's information warfare team and federal government agencies working on national security issues, right? Uh, I don't know that the extent to which that's happening with YouTube and Twitter is less well-documented, so I don't know, but it's well-documented this is going on with Facebook. So at least with Facebook, I can say, if you think that what you're doing on Facebook is hidden from the U.S. government, you're probably wrong. You don't have nearly as much privacy on there right now as you think you do. And the new system that I'm proposing would actually put in some safeguards that would limit that and prevent that. So it might actually end up with better privacy protections than what we've got now. But in any case, I'm confident it wouldn't be any worse than what we've got now. Well, you're absolutely right that we already don't have any privacy, no matter even if we use anonymous or just, you know, some made up names on on Twitter or Facebook anyway. Yeah. And uh, you actually answered another one of my questions. I wanted to ask, so what if I want to have a public account under a pseudonym and I want, I'm a goodwill citizen and I want to criticize my government? Um but, but you already answered the question. And about protecting the safe, uh, information, privacy, and data security, again, it, it is, I'm just mentioning it for the sake of the readers, it is one of the elements that is foreseen in, the, um, in this uh, framework. Uh, let me ask you another question. You come up with a very, uh, it, it is fascinating term, useful idiot. Yes. Uh, who is a useful idiot? And you consider this useful idiot to be a threat you consider this useful leader to jeopardize this, this kind of regulatory system. So can you explain that? Yes. So this is actually, a, uh, th- this is a term that uh, Russians have been using for years. I don't know the Russian language term, but useful idiot is basically an English translation of a Russian language term. And this has been part of uh, Russian strategy really for, or previously Soviet strategy for decades right? The Soviet Union and now Russia for decades have been trying to sort of influence domestic developments in other countries. And one of the things that they have done for a long time is going go around looking for what they call useful idiots. And that is people who will basically help advance their foreign policy goals without even realizing that that's what they're doing, right? Uh, these are useful idiots. And this is the sort of Russian concept. Uh, I think uh, Donald Trump was a useful idiot for the Russians. Uh, It's hard to imagine anybody who could possibly have done more within the United States to advance Russian foreign policy goals than Donald Trump did, both as a candidate and as a president. Uh, You know, uh, was did Donald Trump think that what he was doing was actually advancing Russian foreign policy goals? I don't think he did. I don't think he was purposefully or consciously trying to advance Russian foreign policy goals. But the reality is his whole platform and approach was very aligned with uh, Russian foreign policy goals under Putin. He was anti-NATO. He was anti the EU. He came out and said the EU is our like biggest enemy. Uh, you know, uh, all of this was very much in line with sort of ru- the Russian agenda uh, in Europe. 
Um, he uh, totally trashed, you know, uh, you know, kept saying, referring to the Russia hoax, like saying that all of this stuff about Russia interfering in the 2016 election, it was false, it wasn't true, it's a hoax, right? That also very much in line with sort of uh, Russian foreign policy goals. So the question becomes, well, if we ban Russian state agents from social media platforms and Chinese state agents from social media platforms. But we still have these useful idiots appearing on social media who are essentially putting out the same propaganda that the Russian state agents would put out. You know, what have we really accomplished, right? And all I can say is the, uh, you know, I think we still accomplished something, but you know, um, but but I my the, my, my proposed system does not really address the useful idiot problem. Right? Uh, it's a problem, uh, and uh, and I think we need other kinds of approaches to dealing with that problem. But the system is based on identifying people's nationalities, and if we've got you know a U.S. citizen who basically whose views on general global affairs and foreign policy align with the views of the Russian government. Um, we can't shut them down on social media because they have a different kind of First Amendment protection than Russian state agents. Even, by the way, shutting down, I have a whole chapter in the book on the First Amendment, even shutting down Russian state agents on social media presents First Amendment objections, at least, I think it's legitimate. I think it's constitutional, although that's not clear cut. But what is clear cut is if you try and shut down on social media American citizens just because they happen to be parroting Russian foreign policy views, that if it's the government doing that, that would violate the First Amendment. No question. Uh, so, David, as a last question, um you, you, the, 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 uh, the measures you put into place, they have been called illiberal measures to protect liberal democracies. So what is your response to this criticism? Great. Thank you. That's a great question. So, uh, yes, people have sort of accused me of sort of promoting, you know, taking an illiberal or promoting illiberal measures to sort of protect, uh, you know, uh, liberal values. I think uh, this really goes to the heart of why do we value free speech in a democracy? Do we think free speech is a good in itself, or is free speech really a means to an end, right? And my view is that the reason why we value free speech in a democracy is that we need free speech in order for to have a healthy, functioning democracy. If we want democracy to function properly, we need free speech because free speech is essential for contributing to a properly functioning democracy. But if that, so in, from that perspective, free speech is really more a means to an end than it is an end in itself. And if you buy that, and I think this is sort of fundamentally the position of sort of liberal political philosophy, right? Uh, if you buy that, then some kinds of limitations on free speech that are really designed to protect democracy are not really liberal, illiberal at all, right? They are, the, in other words, restrictions on free speech that, are, that have both the purpose and the effect of contributing to a healthy functioning democracy are, in my view, 
wholly aligned with liberal values, right? And so that's really what I'm trying to do is come up with restrictions on free speech that make democracy work better. And I think that giving Chinese and Russian state agents unrestricted uh, access to social media and allowing them unrestricted free speech on social media actually undermines democracy and is therefore at odds with sort of the core purposes why we want to protect free speech in the first place. So in the end, I don't think what I'm proposing is at all inconsistent with liberal political philosophy. I think it's entirely in harmony with liberal political philosophy. Professor David Slons, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it.